Much like the internet, food sits at the intersection of all things family, culture, politics, class, entertainment, desire, and even power. What we eat says a lot about who we are, what we have access to, and how we relate to one another. Perhaps no one knows this better than the experts who make the meals we love. It's part of why food writer and cookbook author Tara O'Brady began sharing her love for food online 17 years ago. Since then, food media has only become more immersive, moving from blogs to full-fledged lifestyle brands. The question is, why? Why are people hungry for more? And more importantly, what does it take to satisfy the internet's appetite? Welcome to Let's Talk About the Internet, a conversation about the future of the internet in Canada. This podcast is part of a partnership between Meta and The Walrus. I'm your host, Mohit Rajans. Tara O'Brady is an accomplished food writer and the cookbook author of Seven Spoons. She joins us to talk about the evolution of content creation and food media. But first, she discussed these topics at the Walrus Talks at Home, CanCon Online. Let's have a listen to that talk. When I began to consistently write online in 2005, I could not have predicted digital media would change my life. And I'd like to talk about how much the job of being a creator has changed as well. The promise of Web 1.0 was the democratization of information. Egalitarian, largely divorced from the constraints of age, gender, or geography. The utopian belief emerged that one could be anyone online. And I thought the same for me. I had a writing background, so I would be a writer online until I could be a writer in my real life. To go with my words, I took photos with a tiny camera and a lamp I dragged from one side of the kitchen to the other. I wrote without thought to an audience. It was simply a message sent out into the ether with the hope that somehow it would echo back, rebounding off some like-minded individual. It was a hobby. Then it all exploded. Digital media became media, full stop. Stack counters lit up. People began to take things very seriously. We were given tools to measure our popularity and were told to prioritize SEO. Advertisement proliferated on the margins. There was competition, awards, visual-based aggregate sites like Food Gawker arrived, and the words became less important. My inexpensive point-and-shoot no longer would cut it. DSLRs and knowledge of the full Adobe suite was the standard, or at least the time and resources to acquire both. Output needed to match demand. Folks started making serious cash. Traditional outlets came calling and many of us were offered columns then books. Food blogs were leveraged into product lines, restaurants and television programs. And then that all gave way to social media. Twitter is microblogging, Instagram a streamlined Flickr. There was an intentional sense of shared ownership in the ways these platforms presented themselves, even while the very communities we'd fostered were split into fragments cast across a boundless space. Blogs were now largely businesses, media companies on their own, proliferated, peppered with affiliate links. Social media was something altogether different. Declared to immeasurably, immeasurably support other financial endeavors by elevating one's brand, 
only directly benefiting the few influencers who leverage their effect upon others to broker deals that took place in DMs and in rooms the average user never entered. With Web 3.0, the rise of the creator is an attempt to monetize participation in an accountable transaction controlled wholly by those within the act, upfront in the open. As Sam mentioned, through places like Patreon, Kickstarter, Cameo, Buy Me a Coffee, Substack, and myriad others. Instead of a nebulous concept of value, there are prices, tiers, and tipping models. It is an attempt to tighten the net around our various audiences, to cluster them through a link tree, perhaps, even as that is simply a crossroads to those same distance corners as before. And unfortunately, for many creators, the reality falls short of the promise. Despite Bloomberg valuing the creator economy at 20 billion, that wealth is only reaped by the very few. The Twitch info leak revealed the staggering reality that only 1% of its streamers make 50% of the service's revenue. 50% make less than $28 per annum and do not even see a penny as there is a minimum $100 payout. Similarly, a meager five to 10% of Substack users are reported to be paid subscribers. Before the term was coined in 2011, as claimed by Timothy Shea, consciously or not, anyone who interacted with the internet was a creator. If you commented on a forum, posted a video on YouTube, send friends a snap, streamed an event, you have added value to a platform simply through your interaction with us. And someone profited. And those capital C creators, those who have to pay taxes, cover equipment costs, cobble together retirement plans, insurance, employ others, they function in a rebranded gig economy without any of the infrastructure of the previous models. I'm considered accomplished. I've written a book. I'm a freelance food writer for numerous pub outlets, a travel and event host, and an on-air personality. And even though I do not run ads and only very rarely engage in sponsored content, on social media or in any digital space. Those channels are the consequent source of most of my income. They are my calling card. And thus my bottom line is tied to their changeability and conditions of success. There is that expectation of always hustling, always innovating, that in my agreement of terms of use was the tacit understanding of the lack of control of my own livelihood. And as Richard mentioned, the unrelenting requirement to keep pace with opaque algorithms. The, the economy in which we supposedly are equal participants remains largely unknowable to those of us who rely on it and to those of us who are its consumers. If we cannot define it, then it is impossible to own it, let alone to know the true gamble of being one of the few being paid. Thank you so much. That's Tara O'Brady speaking at the Walrus Talks at Home, CanCon Online. She joins me now to talk about the changing nature of food media and content creation. Thanks for joining us, Tara. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to this conversation. You're often considered a pioneer in the food blogging space. So when you do fast forward and you consider the impact of social media, how has social media impacted your career and what you've ended up doing? So it used to be that when a blog and you were really interested in who was doing something new that day, you either had to go to their site and check in, 
because there wasn't newsletter functions and there wasn't alert functions. So Food Gawker and Taste Spotting were the first two really big ones where they would put up thumbnails of your latest image. So if you had new content, it would appear as a thumbnail image. But that took words out of the equation. So for many of us that started from a writing background and we're taking photographs with our point-and-shoot cameras with janky lamps and it was tiny little pictures and essays beside it, it switched over because to get the attention on that page amongst all of those photographs, there was suddenly this pressure to be magazine worthy, to become a little bit of a media empire in your basement or after work. And then from there, when you start going into social media, that fractured it. Because Instagram, in so many ways, went completely photo-based. And then Twitter became the pithy little short commentaries, because that was the other thing. People coming to your site meant you tended to know your community much more. It meant that everyone else could see the conversation that was happening because it was a comment thread beneath your post. And it felt like a around your dining room table. And then Instagram, social media, it made it into a neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So these conversations were now very different styles depending on the platform that you were interacting on. It would be different voices coming at you. So it diversified everything. With each social media platform, you had different ways that you were then able to not only interact with your readers, of course, but you also had built-in monetization and transactional sides to that relationship. So you start to become more active as a social media producer. But you start to bring in more of a personal touch as well. When did that conscious decision happen where you decided to bring in both the skill that you have plus with the personal side of what you do in your day-to-day life? It's an, an interesting thing for me because I am not a person that actually shares a terrible amount of my personal life. My kids are not on any of my content. You don't really see me in my home very often. So to me, my work is the food writing. And so everything that I do choose to share tends to be in support of that. And it's been a bit of a push and pull. There is absolutely a tension there in many ways, because as those formats have changed, there has been much more of an expectation that I become the product, that the idea of brand versus what I do for work, you know, that they come together in some ways. And there is that blurring of boundaries when your name is also your calling card. Because when I'm selling Tara O'Brady, to me, I am selling a byline versus a person. And yet, Mm -hmm. because of the immediacy in so many ways of social media, that it is used in cinema verite, day in the life ways that lots of influencers and content creators use, sometimes there is an expectation by an audience that you should follow that format and that you should be that accessible. The fact that I make that conscious choice is a point, admittedly, sometimes of friction. I would also imagine it it comes with different obstacles based on the opportunities that represent themselves, right? So you do bring into play here that the monetization and commercialization that's happening within your industry is particularly driven by a personality, one that doesn't live and die by a recipe. The question here is food media is often defined by its personalities. Uh, Bon Appetit had a massive following and Gordon Ramsay has particularly made a career out of his demeanor. People don't just want the recipe, they want the person. Do you agree with that statement? Why do you think audiences are so obsessed with food personalities? So personality-wise, I think that there's such a possibility there for people because of the fact that everyone has an opinion about food. 
we can talk right. about architecture. And you might have a passing interest on whether or not you like something, but you do not feel that you have a right to maybe speak on different movements of architecture or what is the best way to do a heart bypass. You might be interested in it, but you don't feel like an expert. But because this is a thing that is quotidian, it is that you have emotional ties to it, you have physical ties to it, you have tastes, you have thoughts. So because of that, everyone feels that they have a right to be heard when it comes to food. People get passionate about it for a reason. I think that we then want to also have an interaction with those that are producing that content in a different way. It doesn't feel merely scholastic. It doesn't feel academic. It doesn't have that separation because it is literally a thing that you're putting in your body. You're touching, you're feeling, you're tasting, you're smelling it. And so we want our personalities to feel as intimate and as everyday in many ways as that is. Okay. As somebody who might consider themselves a little bit of a Swiss army knife of a skill set like yourself, when it comes down to being a person of color, do you feel like there's a different amount of pressure associated with the work that you do? Which is kind of a loaded question. I recognize that. But what I'm hoping for from the answer is how you found your journey to storytelling. And if you have more stories to tell, how would you like to tell them? Well, it's changed my own relationship with my face, if you will, and the realities of how people perceive that face as I've moved through these years in media. Because, of course, when I started out, I did have that veil of anonymity of not knowing that anyone was going to pay attention to my website. It didn't have a last name on it. It didn't have a photograph of me on it. Blogs didn't expect that to begin with. It was a fascinating moment for me, especially when my book came out, because I started having to do press tours. And even though I'm born in Montreal and proudly Canadian, it was amazing to me how often media would push back with the immigrant aspect of my story as they wanted it to be. The circumstances of how my parents came to this country suddenly had something to do with my cookbook, even though I hadn't lived with them for I don't even know how many years at that point. And even though my book only has, I think, maybe four Indian recipes in it, that was the immediate story. Even though this book wasn't about my family's food, it was about contemporary Canadian cuisine. And it was suddenly that moment where you, as a person of color, realize that there's still that asterisk beside your Canadianness, And that as somebody who was in a similar position to me, writing their first cookbook, and if they happen to be white, and if their parents were born here as well, that they wouldn't be asked the same questions that I was being asked. Right. It is that unfortunate realization that I know so many people of color have gone through that you realize that how you see yourself is sometimes less important than how the world sees you, because self-definition won't matter as much in the public space as the box that they choose to put you in. And so that became something that as I started going into the food world more and more when it comes to publishing, that it was both a help and a hindrance. Because of course, when it's like Diwali, everyone's ready to call on an Indian food host because they want that content. But my years of study and my years of work, and truthfully, what I'd honestly say that I'm better at is, you know, non-Indian cuisine. And yet I can easily sell those recipes through the consequence of my skin rather than the contents of my brain. 
And I still at the same time understand the privilege because I have an easily pronounceable name, speak without an accent, and am Canadian born. I did write a piece about this for Epicurious that same year. Mm. The title of it is The Color of My Skin is Sometimes Confused with the Scope of My Talent. Because there is also that expectation of what lane I'm allowed to fit into. And should I be only telling the story of someone's bangles clicking beside the tava as they're making dal or making puris? Is that the story that I'm allowed to tell? Or am I allowed to be in other spaces? I can relate to so much of what you were saying. I was a person who put on three different hats to review films I would review Bollywood films for one station and I'd review Hollywood films for another and I would do urban films for another radio station. And it was like the three worlds couldn't talk to each other. They didn't want to know that they all existed in the same city, in the same market. So I can really relate to what you're saying there. Specifically in the article, I wanted to point out that you mentioned this is the commodification of otherness, blackness, indigenous, Asianness, Latinness. When you're Viability is categorized by minority status. Opportunities are limited once a diversity quota is met. I found that so fascinating. It sat with me. It was written a while ago. Do you still believe that? I think it's changed a bit because that was written now almost 19 months ago. It was the summer of 2020. Part of that is rooted in the fact that we are taught as people of color of a scarcity mindset and that our spots at the table are denoted by that idea of quotas. And because when it comes to food media, and now especially as food media personalities, diversity is almost considered problematic because then it's like we're niche rather than still being seen as universal, that I will be considered Indian before I'm considered Canadian. And I think we self-limit in some ways because it is easier to then pitch towards the diversity quota than it is to say, no, see me for the other thing that I have to offer. Then it is harder to get people to push those chairs open at the table. So it is the learning of the fact that if I succeed, it doesn't mean that you as my peer, as another Indian or as another woman or another minority, that you then are going to have less, that if we just keep doing this, it's the possibility of all of us having more. And that's also a bit of unlearning that I hope has been happening in the last while. Instagram, back in the day, as far as I can remember, was originally a great source for people just posting what they ate. And people still use it as a place where they post their meals very proudly. I was wondering how you think social media has influenced people's relationship to food and the food industry. It has made us that much more aware of our relationship to food. And for some people, it is very much this artistic expression. For others, it is that they are wanting to create it almost like a product. It's a construct and you can actually see the construct because when there are eggshells on your dining table, when the cake is already baked, you know no one actually cooks like that. (laughs) Also, I think because of the fact that food is this thing that is prevalent in all of our lives in some way, shape or form, that it made everyone feel like they had the ability to engage in the conversation. So that's probably why it was really easy for so many people to get into the food space when Instagram really started, because, you know, you might not all have a vintage car, you might not all have horses or something that other people were doing as these little communities, but 
you could take a photograph of your macchiato. And there was this sense of equity about it because you had a phone and you had a coffee. You really didn't need a lot to feel that you were part of the conversation. And then the other thing is this objectification of food. You know, I'll admit this is a little bit of dirt. <laughs> I know how many vegan bloggers I know out there that aren't actually vegan in their real lives. It was the idea then that that we could have these very specific areas. And that was another thing was that trends sped up. It used to be that food was based on a magazine coming out once a month, maybe a few recipes going on a website, but now it's daily content, if not multiple times a day. So the workload and the amount of creativity and resources that is being put into the food industry is at an all-time high, even though the numbers are really low when it comes to paychecks, because people want this content and they want this free. People are more active in this space than ever before, and yet there's also this expectation of what we should and should not be paying for. During the Walrus Talk event, you mentioned how some people want your work for free because they see what you do as both a chef and a content creator as unskilled labor. So how do you feel we get over this idea? There was a larger context to me talking about that because I was talking about the fact that cooking in general, is, especially by women, is often considered unskilled labor in comparison to those who traditionally were men in professional kitchens because it was a domestic work. So the, the thing that I was really getting to with that was this idea that we also believe that media, by and large, should be free. People complain when they hit a paywall on a magazine website, when they hit a paywall, period. For some reason, we're willing to pay for certain things and we're not willing to pay for others. And it's something that I get pushed back for so often as a journalist that when a newspaper decides to put my recipe behind a paywall, I get an email or I get called out on social media and I first of all tell them that is their issue with the publication, but then also remind them that the reason I was able to write that recipe was because of said paywall. More content creators need to be asking for fair wages. When you had a blog, you were the food stylist, you were the photographer, you were the cleanup crew, you were the prop stylist, you're the editor, you did all of those jobs. We did not learn how to ask for compensation that was in line with that. Because there are no benchmarks when it comes to salaries, there's, there are no bench, there isn't like a comparative industry study. So us do taking control of that in many ways and sharing that information, I think is something that we need to do. And I'm glad to see that happening. And then the other side of it is that from an audience perspective, one of the problems with social media is that it puts us as individual content creators on the same pages, in the same spaces as actual huge conglomerates, you know, media companies. So I'm supposed to keep up with Bon Appetit or Condé Nast. People sometimes forget that old adage of like, I'm, I'm a real person and I'm one person and I don't have a staff. I don't have a test kitchen. And so there's also that understanding that even though we might be in the same physical space on the same app on your phone, that there are actually different circumstances outside that little screen when it comes to what we are able to do and also then you're, if you're willing to pay a subscription to them, then maybe you'll be okay with the fact that I have done a paid sponsorship or maybe pick up my book or do something that's going to end up making this possible for me to continue to do. 
So let's talk about the future then. Let's talk about what your wish is for the future of the internet when it comes to your industry specifically. As the internet continues to evolve, what do you hope the future of content creation in food media looks like? One of the things that I would really love to see is that we're not seeing just the personalities as diversification, that we're seeing diversification on all levels of the media industry, like art direction and makeup artists and every level of it, rather than just being the face, because frequently when you are hired to only be the face, it's, it's harder for you to change culture because then you are brought in as a speaker box rather than someone that is deciding what is being spoken. When it comes to the internet and the digital space is an understanding of this transactional quality of it. And that's where things like Patreon and paid Substack and all of those interfaces really come into play. Because when you see like a cameo, for example, you know you're signing up for 30 seconds. You know what the content of that 30 seconds is going to be versus there is this nebulous quality sometimes with social media where you somehow feel beholden to produce as people want versus what you are comfortable or what you intended to give because of the fact that you're working instead towards an algorithm than you are towards fulfilling an actual fairly specific contract. But aren't you technically just signing up for learning about another system that you have to be good at in order to maintain an audience? Is there a danger a little bit sometimes to look at Patreon, Substack, etc. as being this answer when people forget that's a separate ecosystem you have to learn in order to find profit? For me, and this is very specific to me, but I have a Substack newsletter and it is a newsletter. I have, there is legitimately no promises of video. There is no promises of reels. There is no promises of lives. I actually have the ability to change if I choose to or stick to what I am setting out as what success means to me. And I know that sounds like a, it's a weird thing to say, but when you are in this larger thing of even TikTok moving away from dances into much more day of the life content, what if you're a person who is really good at doing dances in a corner and suddenly are expected to show the, the rest of your life? You might not want to do that, but if you have this audience that's saying, you're boring now, and you're getting that pressure. But if I have a Substack that I have set up and said, this is a food newsletter, if you don't like it, I feel far less obligation because it's just like changing the channel. And I'm totally good with you changing the channel. But somehow in social media and because of how that works, you're expected far more to be for everyone and far more to be for what that platform has decided it wants to be that week. And maybe it's like a false sense of security, but it feels to me that I have set out my personal terms of use in a much more specific way. And you've done so brilliantly. And I like the fact that you come at so much of what you've done in the online space with the genuine, what story do I want to tell approach first? So all that to say, I think this was a wonderful conversation. And if there's anything else you want to say about the potential future for your business, please take this opportunity to do so. I think you've covered so much of it, Mohit, and I appreciate your time and asking me to be part of this conversation. It is a conversation that's constantly changing. I feel like we could probably sit down next week and we would both have completely different perspectives and new things to say. I feel like so often when I'm talking so critically of it, that I forget in some ways, and I would hate to, that the potential is so inspiring 
And I am lucky for the fact my book was published by a publisher out of Berkeley. And I live in Niagara. And through the pandemic that I was putting together packages for the Wall Street Journal and I was doing them from my house and taking photographs and sending them off. And all of those things happened because of the internet and because of social media. I do want to (laughs) acknowledge and embrace the positivity of that. It's what brought me to this conversation with you. Well, Tara, I couldn't agree with you more. Thank you so much again for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you again. Tara O'Brady is a food writer and cookbook author. You can find her work in her book, Seven Spoons, and on her website, taraobrady.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Let's Talk About the Internet, a podcast for Meta, produced by The Walrus Lab. I'm your host, Mohit Rajans. Thank you to our producers, Nikki Manfredi and Jason Herterick, and our audio editor, Michael Allen, who helped put together this episode. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast player and share it with a friend. We'll be releasing a new episode in two weeks.